Thank you so much for joining us today for our LifePoint podcast. At LifePoint, we believe everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect, and with God, anything's possible. Hope you enjoy. Good afternoon, everybody. How are you today? Yeah. Happy St. Patrick's Day to you, for whatever that means for each of you. It's different for everybody. Most of us, it's like, we're green and we're good. Uh, for somebody in, our, st- in our, our parking lot team today, they were wearing a kilt. I don't know if you guys saw that on your way in, but that's like a real man that will wear a skirt out in the, par- in the cold. <laughs> Takes that St. Patrick's Day stuff serious. Love it, love it, love it. Hey, we're so glad you're here today. My name is Danny Rivers, and I'm one of the pastors around here at LifePoint. And uh, we're going to start a brand new series today uh, called Chapter and Verse, which we're going to take all the way up uh, to Easter for the next five Sundays. But speaking of Easter's, Easter's, uh, not your Libra, anybody? Did you not realize that since Easter's? No, I'm not going to say what he says there. It's funny, though. Um, uh, speaking of Easter, uh, it's a big time of year. It's coming up in about five, I think, five Sundays from now. And uh, I don't really understand why people who normally don't go to church or who are not Christ followers decide that Easter is the day that they're going to come. I don't know why that happens. Maybe it's pressure from their parents or their grandparents or their, their, their friends or neighbors. Whatever it is, they come. And they come in a lot of times in large part because of folks like you who would say, hey, I'm going to take an invitation card and I'm going to give it to somebody. I'm going I'm to make an invite to, to Easter. And typically what we've seen at LifePoint is that on the Easter weekend, we will see uh, sometimes close and sometimes more than double the amount of what a normal service looks like for us. Um, so uh, right now, not this is spring break weekend, and we know there's a lot of folks traveling, but on a normal spring break, I mean a normal weekend, there's some 750 to 800 people who come here on, on Sundays. And so chances are, if, if, if things hold the way they have been over the last few years, we'll have a, a pretty good crowd here. Uh, what that means is that we uh, are always going to need help, extra help um, from, from folks who call LifePoint home. And if you're a guest with us today, just, just stop listening while I'm talking to the folks who call this home. We're going to do five services this year. We did five services last year, but we're going to do a totally different thing than we've ever done. Uh, so April the 19th is Good Friday. We're going to have a Good Friday service, but it's going to be part of our Easter um, services. It'll be the same message, a lot of the same songs, with the exception that Good Friday is going to be different, is that we're going to take the c- communion together, and we're going to extend our worship set. I mean, we're going to sing more songs than normal, particularly a brand new song that we're going to do for communion. It's a beautiful, powerful song. And then on Saturday, that'll be at 7 o'clock on, to give people time to come home from work. Fr- Saturday, we'll have one service at 5 o'clock and so that you'll have time to go home and hang out with your family and, you know, do the Easter egg hunt and whatever you're going to do. Um, and then Sunday, our normal three services. Now, let me say this. Based on our past history, we know that people who come on, on Saturday nights uh, or Friday nights, we've never done Friday night, but, but our church people, people who already go to church, who, who call LifePoint home, and then a lot of times they're like, I'm going to go to my mother's church. I'm going to go to my grandmother's church and visit with her on Sunday. And what we'd love for you to do is come on Friday, come on Saturday, soak it in, take it in, just receive from the Lord if you're a life pointer. But then consider, consider, and this is the part I'm going to just, this is an ask from me to you. I'm asking you to help us reach lost people because we believe that we're going to see, because we saw it last year, we saw almost 100 people give their lives to Jesus on Easter weekend last year, all in one, uh, one weekend. Uh, and we think God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think or imagine, Ephesians 3.20 says. And we're, gonna, we're, we're expecting God to do even bigger things than that this year. And that just means that we're going to need some help. So we're saying, if, you're, if life points your home, come on Friday, come on Saturday, come to both if you want to. Uh, then come ready to serve on Sunday. Even if you're not one of our dream team people, or you used to 
used to be and you kind of slid backwards and you're not really on the team anymore, but you kind of wish you were or you never wanted to be, but you're willing to step up on Easter's weekend, right? We got this thing right here. We would love it if you'd get out your phones real quickly and text in for Easter, just like that, 255222. A little form is going to pop up. This is if you're not on the team or if you're like, don't schedule me right now but you're, you're willing for, this, for, for Easter weekend, you're willing to schedule. So I'm, my ask is that you, you come on Friday and Saturday, you come back on Sunday, but you come back on Sunday to serve. One, two, three services even. Some of you are ninjas like that, and you're able to do this and, because you love Jesus even more than everybody else, and, um, <laughs> and you love your pastor even more than everybody else, and, and you're willing to help us, help us, help us reach lost people for Jesus. Can I get a good amen on somebody? We're going to start a series that day called Chainbreaker, and it's going to be potent, man. I'm telling you, it's going to be so powerful. All the way through that series is going to be, I'm telling you, it's going to be so good. So we need your help. We need your help. Text that number. Even if you're not on the team, um, we're, we're especially looking for help in our impressions teams, which is the parking lot, which is ushers, which is front of the house, and our kids. Our kids team will normally serve 130 to 150 maybe kids on a Sunday. Uh, but on Easter weekend, we'll probably serve 300 or 400 children. And so how many of y'all know that's a lot of kids? So like, even if, even if you don't normally like kids, like them on that day and, and help us out. Thanks so much. Text that number, and the team will follow up with you uh, in the next week or so. Starting a brand new series this morning, we're calling the Chapter and Verse. And the idea is over the next few weeks, um, when I'm teaching, um, that I'm going to give to you some chapters from the Bible, some verses, some selected verses from those chapters that have been significant for me, uh, like Psalm 103, like Ephesians chapter 3, like John chapter 3, a lot of threes in this thing here. And um, today I'm going to start um, with what I consider the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. Like I know that's a big statement, but I don't think I'm alone in this notion. Many, many, many biblical scholar, scholars will say that this is one of, if not the greatest chapter in all the Bible. If there were a Hall of Fame for biblical chapters, and some of you are like, can there be the great chapter in the Bible? Aren't all of them great? Yes, but how many of you know that some of them are better than others? Come on, come on, just be honest with me. Like, if you've ever had to read the book of Chronicles where there's like 10,000 names in a row, like, that's not fun. You know what I'm saying? I'm sure there's some reason it's there, but it ain't fun. If, you, if you're trying to read through the Bible, uh, like in one year, like a lot of you are doing right now, and you get to Leviticus, it just breaks down, right? It just breaks down. You're like, dear God, when is Leviticus over? It's not as good as Romans 8. I'm just telling you, Romans 8 is amazing, and that's what we're going to teach from today. Um, and, 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 and the reason I love it so much, it's, it's a couple of reasons. It's got 39 verses, and in those 39 verses, if I were to meet somebody who says, Danny, I don't know anything about Jesus. I don't anything about the cross. I don't anything about grace. I don't anything about mercy. I don't anything about the Holy Spirit. I would take them to this chapter because it is so powerful and so potent. As a matter of fact, I want to tell you how Romans 8 starts. Chapter 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like what's better news than that? Right? And you know how it finishes? It finishes with this. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So it starts with, it starts with, there is no condemnation, and it ends with, nothing shall separate us from the love of Jesus. That's the two great bookends of this one chapter alone. And by the way, by the way, today, um, if you were here last Sunday where I was kind of teachy, teaching you about marriage, today you're going to be like, is this dude schizophrenic? Because like last week he was like calm, but today I'm going to be kind of jacked up a little bit. I'm just going to be a little bit crazy, a little bit... Like, as I've been preparing for this all week long, I, as I'm writing this down, like, I'm so moved by Romans 8 that I'm, like, literally in Starbucks yesterday just crying. Like, 
And people are like, dude, that guy must be going through it. I'm like, no, God loves me, man. How amazing is that, that God loves me? I know, I know me, but God loves me anyway. All right, so I'm going to be fired up. Come back another time when I'm not quite as fired up. But today, if you like fired up, Danny, this is going to be fired up, Danny, all right? Because this chapter has so much meaning for me personally because I was raised in a kind of religious context that was heavy on rules and regulations and a little bit light on love and and the grace of God. And as a result, um, by nobody's intention, I grew up with this sort of malformed view of God that, that had in my mind that had God angry at me, and chronically disappointed in, in, in Danny. Uh, like, 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 and I don't know how else to say it, and if you're, if you're a, a police officer, I'm not disparaging you today, but like, like, like God was like the highway patrolman, um, and, and, I, and I know this because I was just driving to Galveston this week, and there was multiple times after you go through Sealy and after you pass Bucky's, where they're around the corner with their hair dryers pointed at you, waiting to bust you in your sins. Do you know what I'm saying? And, and I had God like that in my mind, that he was trying to catch me. And, and I think, sadly, the truth is a lot of people have this view of God, that the view of God that he's this God that's sort of mean and, 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 and not very tolerant, that he's kind of harsh, and, and he's only interested in catching and, and ultimately punishing the rule breakers of the world, that, that, that he's this kind of God who, who demands uh, respect over admiration, that he'd rather lecture us than have a meaningful conversation with us who, who can only know how to relate to us from far away rather than close up and personal, who, who prefers that I fear him more than that I love him. And, and if this is your image of God, it was mine for so many years, then, then I want to I, I tell you that, that the way that this got fixed in my mind was in, in large part the book of Romans. When I began to read Romans again for the first time, I hadn't, I mean, not for the first time, but when I began to look at it through the lens of grace and, and love and, and, and the truth of, that's in God's word, it changed this, this, this false notion that I had for God. And I, I hope um, that you'll see another side of God in, in only two verses that I'm going to have time to get to today. But I want to pray for you first, if that's okay. Lord, I just pray for everybody who's here today, that they would receive your word, that they would, they would hear, not only with their their regular, ear, their natural ears, but with the, 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 the heart, God, that they would receive the word of the Lord, uh, whether they're people who are exploring faith for the first time or whether they've been believers for years and years and years, that something would be said today, some truth would be revealed to them that would impact their lives and, and in a powerful way. I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody give me a good amen. Amen. I know this is going to sound strange, but I want to read from Romans 8.31 in just a moment. But before I do... I want to go back to the Psalms, and I particularly want to read a Psalm of David called uh, the Psalm 56, and I want to give you some context, because I think when Paul writes uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 31, he has this Psalm in mind, because he knew the Psalms, and he had probably memorized most of them. He had this Psalm in mind, and so this Psalm is written by David, and, 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 and it's written under unusual circumstances. He's penning this Psalm while he is facing hopeless and... Uh, dire situations because he's locked up in a prison in a town called Gath. Now, Gath won't mean much to most of you, except for the sort of scholars amongst us. But David once killed a man named Goliath. How many of you have ever heard of Goliath? Like, even if you're not a Bible person, you've... Nobody has? Okay. Three of you have. Okay, this is a powerful... I need to teach about David and Goliath again. Um, he's killed this guy, Dave, uh, Goliath, who was their champion who was their hero, the Philistine's hero, who was mocking God. And not only does he kill him, but he cuts off his head and, and, and makes a mockery of this, this guy. And now, anybody want to guess where Goliath's from? 
He is from Gath. And so now, all these years later, David is in prison in Gath, and the people who were ashamed because their champion got defeated by this guy, they now have him in prison, and there's no telling what they're going to do to him. And rather than, rather than doing what I would have done in his situation, rather than writing a psalm going, God, where are you, and why have you forgotten me, and why has this happened to me? He writes something completely different. Psalm 56, verse 8, look at this. You've seen me tossing and turning through the night. And, and before I go on, have you, ever, have you ever experienced that right there? Where you're laying awake at night, something is troubling you, something's bothering you, you're wondering, you're worrying, you're imagining. Like I have a very vivid imagination during the day, but at nighttime, particularly when I'm nervous or worried or anxious about something, how many of you know that my imagination goes to a hell never level? Specific, specifically when I'm worried about something. And, and so if, if you've ever experienced that, it's like, what, what's going to happen with my job or what's going to happen in our family or what's, gonna go on, what's going on in our marriage, God, and what does the future hold? And I don't know what to do. And what am I supposed to do with this big decision that I have to make? I don't know wh- what to do. And, and, and that feeling, even if your spouse is right there, can feel so lonely and so isolating. And, and does anybody know who, where I'm at? And does anybody know what's going on? And, and, and it can lead, at least for me, does God still love me? Has God forgotten me? Is, is he mad at me? And that's why this stuff is going down and tossing and turning, always a little bit afraid of how this particular story ends. And, and all through my life, I've experienced these times of wondering because of the way I was raised, does God know me? Is, is, he, is he mad at me? Is he, is he disappointed in me? Because I had this view I had this view of God based, that was based on God loves me, God sees me based on what I've done for him, based on how much I've done or how, how good I, it is in my life and me, between me and him. And so David goes on and says, you've seen me tossing and turning through the night, and you've collected, look at this, all of my tears in your bottle. You, you, you've recorded every one of them in your book. That, that's just amazing to think that a God sees my own tears, and he records them. And then, he, and then there is this, this certain sound that David gives in the middle of a, of a very uncertain situation. And he says, this one thing I know. God is for me. I skipped verse 9, but God is for me. Now, I want you to imagine this. The great God of heaven is for me. I don't know what that does for you to hear those words of David, but these words have comforted me over and again throughout my life, and I'm not certain of always of the outcome, but, but the one certainty that I know, that I feel in my heart, is that God is for me, and that's the message I want to bring across to you today, like, which, which brings us to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. And all of the preceding verses, which I'm not going to get to today, I'm, I'm going to come back and do an entire series on Romans 8. All of these preceding verses of, from 1 to verse 30 are telling us some incredible things. It's like, it's like if Romans 8 is Mount Everest, I'm climbing all the way up, I'm climbing up Everest. And, and as I'm getting to these verses in 28 and 29 and 30 and 31 and to the end of it, it's like I'm getting nearer and nearer to the top of the mountain. So Romans 8 verse 31 says, What then... Shall we say in response to these things? What, what things is he talking about? What, is, what does he mean? What's our response? What things? 
All of the things that he mentioned in verses 1 through 30, and and I want to summarize some of these for you, that we are justified by God just as if we never sinned. And so as a result, when God sees us, we are not condemned. Even though we have done wrong things, we are not condemned, which is why Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he says in another verse that we are heirs of God, that we are literally the sons of of God, and as a result, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, that, that in another verse he says we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit he intercedes on our behalf so that even when life is so hard and even when we are so broken and beaten down that all we can do is groan that the Holy Spirit um, will take those words and fix them on their way up to God that God in his sovereign omnipotent, overruling providence ensures a, a, a divine governance over all things so that everything works together for the good of those who love Jesus. And, and if all of that is true, what, he says, shall we say? What shall we say to these things? And then he goes on, he says, here's what we're supposed to say. If God be for us, And this is what David was getting at. If God is for us, this one thing I know God is for us, take a moment and think about the words I'm telling you right now, that God is for you. Not not that he might be or not that he will be someday. Like maybe your family's turned their backs on you. Maybe your children have disappointed you. Children, maybe your parents have disappointed you. Uh, Maybe you've been laid off. You've lost a job. But, but, But the maker of the mountains is for you. And the one... Who, who laid the floor of the oceans is for you. The one who scattered a hundred billion stars across a billion galaxies uh, with a playful toss of his hand. He's for you. Not, not was, not will be, not might be, but right now he is for you. There is no waiting. There is no uh, probationary period. There is no small print to rate, wade, uh, wade through. Right now God is for you. And his availability to you is not dependent on how good you've been or how perfect you you been. He's not like Santa Claus checking his list twice, right? Frowning on what you did. No, this God is for you right here, right now. And I believe that he knows my favorite food, carnizada, and he knows my favorite way to spend an afternoon eating carnizada, and he wants to overwhelm you and me with good things, is what the scripture says. Here he he is saying in the scriptures that he, his favor lasts a lifetime for you. I love this from, from Isaiah 49, 16. He says, I have written your name on my hand. Like, like, like God has tattoos on his hand with your name and your stuff on there. Come on, somebody. That's pretty awesome. And so Romans 8, 31 is what do we say about all of that? If God is for us, who can be against us? Come on, somebody. Who can be against us? Now, now this doesn't mean that nobody can come against us. That's not true because we have people come up against us all the time. Can I get an amen? Like I had an email this morning. Somebody came up against me, right? Doesn't mean that because God's on my side that nothing bad's ever going to happen. But what it lets me know is that when bad stuff happens, when it all seems like it's going downhill, that, that when the enemy, the Bible says, comes in like a flood, that the Spirit of the Lord is going to raise up a standard against the enemy, right? When, when, when it seems like all of hell is stacked up against me, that the gates of hell will not prevail. 
prevail against me. That when trouble comes from, from all sides, the word said that he's the father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us, verse 4, in all of our troubles. That's 1 Corinthians, by the way. When the enemy surrounds me on every side, I can look to the hills from where my help comes and my help comes from the Lord. Even in the midst of all the stuff of life that I got a God who, who, who is for me, who is with me. And you know what? Even when bad things happen and bad stuff happens to every person in this world, doesn't, you, just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're somehow protected from the bad. But verse 28, which precedes this other verse, says, and this one is on your coffee mugs and you got a plaque of it somewhere in your house. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That even in the bad stuff, God's at work. I, I, I got to read this. It's a long reading. This is from John Piper, an incredible writer and pastor. He says, if you live inside this massive promise, your life is more stable and solid than Mount Everest. Nothing can blow you over when you are inside the walls of Romans 8.28. Outside of Romans 8.28 is confusion and anxiety and fear and uncertainty. Outside this promise of an all-encompassing future grace, there are straw houses of drugs and alcohol and numbing television series and dozens of futile diversions. There are slat walls and tin roofs of fragile investment strategies and fleeting insurance coverage and trivial retirement plans. Come on, somebody say amen. There there are cardboard fortifications of deadbolt locks and alarm systems and anti-ballistic missiles. Outside are a thousand substitutes for Romans 8.28. But once you walk through the door of love into the massive, unshakable structure of Romans 8.28, everything changes. There comes into your life stability and depth and freedom. You simply can't be blown away anymore. The confidence that a sovereign God governs your good and your bad and all the pleasures you'll ever experience is an incomparable refuge and security and hope and power in your life. So tell me, with all of that in mind, who can be against you and what can be against you? When things pile up against you, how do they stack up? Not how do they stack up against you, but how do they stack up against God? Because God is for us, literally before us, out in front of us. He's got my front and he's got my back. And so when stuff comes up against me, it has to go through him first. Yeah. And this is why David could confidently say, this one thing I know, I know I'm in prison. I know the Gathian peoples, however you say that, are, are, are against me. Doesn't matter what else is happening. God is here. God is able. And God is for me. Right. Now, all of that is nice. And all of that is good. But real life has a way of taking hold in our lives and trying to shake that confidence and here's what I believe, and I believe this based on my own experiences. That I believe that most believers are not afraid that God can't handle the difficulties, the struggles, the challenges of life. It's just that sometimes we wonder if God will, and in particular for me. Like, I can believe that God can and will heal you, deliver you, set you free, give you strength, give you peace. But I don't always understand that for me. And this comes, has come in my life because of this lack of understanding of who God is and, and that God is for me and this incorrect view of God that I've I had developed along my younger life. Because in my mind, there's this, there's this nagging doubt about, yes, I believe all that I just said, but, but, but what about for me, that God's favor and that God's blessings are, are somehow dependent on my own goodness or my own worthiness, or my own performance, or my lack of performance. And, and this is the way I sort of describe this 
is, is like, I think most believers could say, we understand that if, if walking with God was like a ladder and there were rungs of the ladder, that the first rung of the ladder, God puts us on that ladder by his grace, by his mercy, because of what Jesus did on the cross. We know that we had nothing to, to get us into the kingdom of God, that it was because of the blood of Jesus. It was because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And through God's sovereignty, he puts us there. But we can tend to think over time, the, particularly the deeper into religion we get, and deeper into religion that, okay, but steps two, three, and four, those are up to me and to my own efforts. And so sometimes, you know, we're praying, we're reading scriptures, we're fasting, you know, we're, we're like, we're, we're becoming like super Christians, and we're like, hey, I'm showing up to church today, and I'm on, I'm on level four, right? And then sometimes we come to church, and we hadn't done anything for a long time, and we're like, I'm on level one, and I don't even know if I'm there anymore. I might be over here completely apart from the ladder. But here's the truth about that. None of that is, is in fact true. That's not how it works. Because of Christ's finished work on the cross, in God's eyes, I'm always at the top rung of the ladder. And it has nothing to do with my own performance, but what Jesus has done for me. Somebody needs to believe that, what Jesus has done for me. But there's always this doubt that will creep in. Yeah, but what about the fact that that one time last week uh, I cut that guy off and, and then I, I waved a, the wrong hand at him and... and, 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 and and, 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 and through my own conscience. And, and then, I'll frankly, to be truthful with you, through the enemy. You, you may not understand that you have a spiritual enemy who likes to whisper in your ear, like, who do you think you are? And, and how can you call yourself a Christian? Did you see what you did the other day? How can you call yourself a child of God? How can you call yourself a leader at church or a preacher or, or whatever? And those doubts come into our mind. And Paul knows this because if you read Romans chapter 7, he's filled with these same doubts. He's like, who can deliver me from the bonds of who I am? Like, I'm a mess, and every time I want to do good, I do the wrong thing instead. And, 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 and so he comes to this, and he knows that our propensity is to, yeah, yes, but, yes, but, yes, 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 Paul, I believe all that, that God's for me, and that who can be, but. And so he obliterates that but with Romans chapter 8, verse 32, and here's what it says. I want you to read this with me now, and I want you to underline this in your Bible if you've got your Bibles out. He who did not spare his own son. Listen to me now. We read this verse quickly. We skip over it. We don't have any understanding. It takes us two, three seconds to read these eight words. He who did not spare his own son. But we have to slow down and we have to realize what we're reading right here. That there's no way that we could ever comprehend without really digging down the price that Jesus paid for us when he left the comforts of heaven to come and be born to a peasant girl on the backside of nowhere so that one day after all of the words that he would say and after all the teachings and after all the miracles that he would perform, that he would eventually die the most horrible death known to mankind at that time so that men might come to know God. And I want you to put yourself now in the place in the garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is kneeling down there before his betrayal, before he's going to be crucified as he prays so fervently. And we forget about this part, that he's praying there and he, and he looks up and he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. So, so great and so passionate is his desire to not have to go through this. But the word says that he prayed with such intensity that that sweat like drops of blood broke through on his forehead. 
as the weight of what was about to happen to him. And by the weight, I mean he was going to be separated from God, that God was going to turn, Father was going to turn his back on his son. Not, not, not just the pain and the shame of the cross. That's not, re- not, not really what he's asking to have pass for him, but, but he's literally going to receive, dumped on him as the stored up cup of God's wrath for all of the sins of humanity. It's about to be poured out on Jesus. And the Father is going to turn away, and he knows this. All of our sins, every sin, both past and present and future, is about to be poured out on Jesus. And we forget that Jesus, here in this garden, is saying, Father, please don't pour out, if it's any way possible. Please spare me what's about to come down on me. But the Father cannot spare him. God spares Isaac from the knife of of Abraham, his father, but God cannot spare Jesus, his only son, from an agonizing death on the cross. And do you know why? Because of his great love for you and for me, because somebody has to pay the price for our redemption, for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins. And so God did not spare his own son. And what Paul is saying is how much more could God love you? Could could God convince you that he's for you? How much more could the father love me that he gave his only son for me, that he handed him over to this horrific death, that the cross is this unspeakable, indescribable proof that God is for you and that God loves you more than you know. So God did not spare his only son. And it had nothing to do with your worthiness or your goodness. In verse 29, he says that God, he foreknew you. He foreloved you, meaning that before you were ever born, he loved you. That I can be secure in the love of the Father even when I'm not perfect because it existed before I failed him. It, like, like it was out of that love that he saved me, Romans 5, 8 says, even when I was a sinner, even when I was at my worst, that you're secure in his love because his love rested on you before the foundation of the earth was laid. Before and in full view of all of my mistakes and failures, God put his love on me. He made a decision that you were worth it and that I was worth it. He did not spare his only son. That's how much he loves you. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. I want want that to soak into your spirits. That that after all that God has done to save you, would he ever leave you hanging now? Would he ever forget about you? Would he ever stop loving you? Is he no longer for you because you've made a mistake or you turned your back on him for a season? I I love these words from Charles Spurgeon. Christ did not love you for your good works. They were not the cause of his beginning to love you. So he, he does not love you for your good works even now. They are not the cause of his continuing to love you. He loves you because he loves you. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with the gift of Jesus, his only son, how will he not graciously give us all things? In other words, I don't care what circumstances you currently find yourself, what failure, what mistake, what shame, what guilt, you, 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 that, that, that might have you believing that God has forgotten you or that God doesn't love you. If he did not spare his only son for you, do you really think he's going to give up on you or forget about you now? I, and I just have to bring this one thing out of this verse. Th- this Greek word, when he says he will not also along with him graciously give, that word give right there, 
In, in, in the Old Testament translation into Greek, it was only used once, this word. In the New Testament, just a handful of times. And one of the places it was used is in Luke chapter 7, verse 21, where it says he gave, he gave sight to many who were blind. Now, I want you to picture this. Jesus walking the, these roads uh, in, in the New Testament, and, and along the way, there would always be people begging for alms and, 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 and looking for charitable handouts, and, and in particular, some blind people who would cry out, you know, alms, 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 and people may come and drop the equivalent of a quarter or a dime, or maybe somebody drops a dollar in there, or somebody has some leftover lunch, and they'll take it by and say, hey, man, here, have this to eat. And, and then one day, Jesus comes walking by, and each one of these have given a gift in their own way, in their own ability, out of their own ability out of their own resources. But one day Jesus comes walking by and, and there's many blind people there and he comes with his own kind of gift, a, a gift that's at a whole different level than you and I can begin to process. And he gives them a gift of sight. Like the best gift that I could give is a little bit of money here. Do you remember Peter and John when they see the lame man? Silver and gold have I none, but take up your bed and, and walk. That the kind of God that we serve, the kind, of, the kind of father that's in my life is the kind of God who can not just give me a little bit of money, but who could restore sight to the blind, who could restore healing to those who are sick, who could restore salvation to those who are lost. That's the kind of God that you and I serve. He brings this whole different level of giving to his own sons and daughters, which is why John would write later on in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love of the Father that has, that has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and that is what we are. Th think, think about that. Let that rest for a moment. Particularly for those of you who have a hard time conceiving of the love of the Father because you didn't have such a good relationship with your own earthly father and you've had a struggle with this. You want to see what kind of love the Father has for you. He didn't make you a servant or a slave. He made you a son. He made you a daughter. And, and what that looks like is that he would lavish upon us in eternity, throughout eternity, the incomparable riches uh, of his grace and of his love because you are his sons and, and his daughters. Listen to me. I don't care how you feel about you right now. You are not a project. You are not just a pawn in the grand scheme of life. You are a child of God. You are a son and a daughter of God. And see, my issue throughout my life has always been trying to understand the love of God based on the love my own father had for me. And he, was an he is an incredible father, an incredible man. And, and then once I had kids, the amazing love that I had on my own daughters. Man, I love those girls. And I can remember holding my firstborn, Noelle, for the first time. And she was really jacked up, man. She was cramped up inside of Rach. And her nose was crooked. It was literally over here. Her feet were both pointed to the left like this. She had, they had, they had used one one of those suction cup things, man, to pull her out. And so she had this little gelatinous blob on her head. And, and I said, babe, she looks like she's been in fight with a Mike Tyson. That's the first thing that came out of my mouth. She's like, let me see you. But as I held Noel for the first time, I was overwhelmed with love for somebody I had just met and seen for the very first time. Those of you who are parents, you can relate to this. But, but here's what Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 7. Here's what Jesus would say about my love for my own kids. He says, hey, listen, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give you what is good? See, some of us have this, this, this idea of God. He, he doesn't give good gifts. He hands out wrath. He hands out punishment. He hands out, no, no, no. However big your love is for your own kids, God's love is incomparable comparative. If, if the love that I have for my own kids 
can, can never compare to the love God has for me, how could I ever wonder, does God love me? Is God for me? Has he forgotten me? Is there anything that he would, I could do that would make him stop? And the answer is no, no. How much more? Jesus says, how much more? You're, you're not something that God is just having forced to deal with. You're not some sort of necessary evil. You are the sons and the daughters of the most high God. And God is for you. But, but in some of our minds, God is the angry officer out there trying to catch me, to bust me. So he's out looking for ways to catch us in our sin and, and lock us up, but nothing could be further from the truth of that picture. The Bible says that God in Christ Jesus came to this earth looking to find those who were lost, those who were broken, those who were hurting, those who were confused, those who were trapped in lifestyles that they wish they could escape. He came looking not to bust us, but to help us, to fix us, to, to save us. I had a friend who posted this this week. I love it. He says, religion, I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. The gospel, I messed up. I got to call my dad. It's the difference in the world that some of us think because of my sin, because of my shame, I should run and hide from God. And at the end of the, 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 Jesus would tell a story about a son who runs away from him. And he said that every day the father was out looking for his lost son. That, that, that he's going, son, son, just come home. I don't care what you did. I don't care how much you've messed up. Just come home. In, in other words, he's not detective God out looking for evidence that we're all sinners. He knows that we're all sinners. And the Bible says that he's out looking to find us, to help us to turn things around for us, to, not to bust us, but rather to save us. He doesn't want to leave us in our sin. He loves us as the song we just sang said, as he finds us, but his love is too good to leave us that way. And that's the image that God wants to see of, you, of him today. Especially in those moments of fear or shame or, or guilt. Not, not a God who is hiding out and creeping around corners to catch us, but rather a God who positions himself in the wide open spaces for us to see him. A God who literally stands in between us and the full weight of the consequences of our sins and our destructive habits and our choices. A God who is for us, a God who loves us, and a God who wants what's best for us. And the beautiful thing about God is there's nothing that I can do to make God love me less hear me. And there's nothing I can do to make God love me more. Out of his own free will, he has chosen to love me just as I am. Just as I am. And when I put the entire New Testament together, and I focus on not the God that I learned, but that I thought I knew, and I, I look for the nature of God, and I see him most clearly in, in the face of Jesus Christ, a God who loves humanity so much that he will go to any extreme to save us. But God did not spare his own son. But God did not spare his own son. That his nature is not to look for ways to banish people, to bust them, to punish them. That's, in fact, the outcome he's trying desperately to avoid. And the bottom line is every one of us, whether you're a, a lifelong believer or whether you're just searching now for Jesus, is we all need a break. We all need a helping hand. Every one of us needs grace. We need a savior. We need a loving father. And that's what we find in God. A loving father who is 100% for us. A faithful friend who the Bible says sticks closer than a brother. 
a comforter who will literally, through the Holy Spirit, walk through with us every difficult moment that we'll ever face, a God who is patient and kind, whose, whose kindness, the Bible said, is what leads us to repentance, not his wrath, not his anger. His anger lasts a moment. His favor lasts a lifetime. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance, whose, whose favor lasts a lifetime. And so Paul finishes all of this with these incredible words. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're not conquerors because of what we did, but we're conquerors through him who loved us. And for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, not any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Could I get a good amen for the word of God? So Lord, we come to you in this moment, in this space. God, thank, thank you. I, I don't know about all these people, but I know me. Um, I'm painfully aware of who I am. And, and the idea that you would call me son, and the idea that you wouldn't spare your own son for me, Is, is, is hard, it's really hard to wrap my mind around. But thank you for your word. Thank you that your spirit inspired Paul to write these words. Thank you that you are for me. As if you don't have enough on your plate that you would see every tear that falls from my face. That somehow you would capture them in, in a bottle. That somehow when I'm tossing and turning at night, you see that. It's like David says in Psalm 8, when I, when I look upon the heavens and I want to look upon the stars, and I consider them, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you would visit him. It's, it's over, overwhelming. Thank you that you love me just as you find me. But your love is too good to leave me the way you find me that you reach for me, no matter where I am, no matter what I've done, and you pick me up, and you dust me off. You put on a robe. You put on a ring. You kill the fatted calf to throw a party because your son who was lost is found. And Lord, some of us in this room today have never known the celebration that the angels have when we turn our face towards you, when we say, Lord, and we can do this in this moment, Lord, be the, be, the, be the Lord of my heart and my life. Come, come live in my heart. God, God, be the forgiver of my sins. God, I come empty-handed, and if I have anything in my hands, it's just my own pain and my own shame 
and my own brokenness and my own sins. And you, you said that you'll take that and you'll make this incredible exchange with me. That the righteousness of Jesus Christ can be put on my life. And in exchange, you'll take all of my pain and all my shame and all of my guilt and all of my brokenness. God, God what an exchange. What, what a trade. Thank you. Come be the Lord of my life. Come be the forgiver of my sins. Come make your home in me. I want to follow you. You love me as you find me. You love me as you find me. And your love is so good that you change my heart and you change my life. And even if I'm a believer, Lord, you can, you can let me know in this place that no matter what I've done or where I've been, Lord, you, you love me as you find me. You love me as you find me. Come on, would you stand with me all over this place? Just while they sing. Hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If this ministry has impacted you in any way and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, please visit lifepointsa.com slash give to make a donation. We hope you have a great rest of your week and we hope to see you soon at one of our Sunday worship experiences. God bless.